The Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Three, Hunger Season. Chapter Seven, Getaway. Before Martin could ask what he had been charged with, everyone else erupted into outrage, shock, and protests. Chief Berg held up his hands to fend off the torrent. Now hold on, hold on. Don't everyone go flying off the handle. Arrest me for what? Martin asked. Berg looked at Landers. It was Landers' turn to speak. The short answer is failure to pay property taxes. What? Martin couldn't imagine what the accusation might be, but he would never have guessed taxes. Taxes? No one's paid property taxes. That's done through the banks, and they've been unable to do anything since the lights went out. Are you out to arrest everybody? Ah, no, just you. Landers heaved a heavy sigh. Yeah, here's the quick backstory, okay? It's Chairman Gradig. Well, I thought as much, said Martin. Clyde says that one of the things us selectmen have been doing wrong since the crisis began is the failure to collect property taxes. He has, um, shall we say, big plans, added Berg. He knows no one has paid their installments because the banks are offline. He also knows there's very little cash left in people's pockets. He's got it figured to have people work off their tax debt. Work it off, asked Charles. Doing what? Berg made the handoff look to Landers. Ah, yes, uh, the projects. Uh, one of the first things he wants to see is a uh, monument built to World War II vets. A monument? Charles was outraged. People are trying to scrape by, hoping not to starve this winter, and he wants them to work on a stinking monument? I know, I know, apologized Landers. It's nuts, but he's got us over a barrel. Everyone needs his con, and he knows it. He was going on and on this morning about how his father was in the army at Guadalcanal. 1945, Quartermaster Corps, Berg chimed in. Laundry division. Nonetheless, continued Landers, Clyde has been miffed, apparently, for a long time, that Cheshire has its Civil War monument, but nothing for World War II. Now that he's in the driver's seat, he's looking to fix that. But a monument? Charles still couldn't accept the idea. That man needs a dirt nap. Well, I can't say as I'd disagree with you, said Landers. In fact, Wilder thinks someone should put a round into Clyde's head and end all of the games. I only wish it was that simple. Well, what's going on with you guys? Martin asked. Quinn comes to town making demands and you all stand your ground. Clyde makes demands and you roll over like lapdogs. Oh, now, don't be so harsh, Landers cautioned. Two very different things. Quinn was the tip of a huge bureaucratic iceberg. He wanted what amounted to total control, which we could see ultimately meaning everyone getting shipped out of their homes and into one of those canton things. Yeah, chimed in Berg. Clyde is just Clyde being a jerk. We're playing along just enough to keep the corn coming while we work on limiting the trouble he might cause. So follow Wilder's suggestion, said Charles. Give him one round and be done with it. Well, for one thing, continued Berg, it's not just Clyde. There's his two sons, and the other's out at his place. 
Clyde's no dummy. He doesn't travel alone or unarmed. And, resumed Landers, taking out Clyde because he's being a greedy jerk would be as just about as bad as a mob lynching that young hoodlum. Taking out his whole family? Yeah, well, what would that make us? Maybe Clyde's got it coming, but uh, where does that end, eh? So you're just going to do whatever he says, said Margaret, like a pack of lapdogs? Well, now look, it's not like we want to arrest your husband, Mrs. Simmons. We all think it's a dumb idea, and Pat's already told him that it can't stick under the circumstances, but he's got an axe to grind over him helping that gang member. You see, Martin said, I told you that my acting as a lawyer would go wrong. I just had no idea how wrong, until now. Oh, now, countered Landers. Holding that hearing was still the right thing to do. Almost everyone else in town seemed satisfied that the law was still in force. That's what this town needs now, law and order. So with all that law and order, you're gonna arrest me? Martin asked. This is absurd. Berg and Landers looked at each other again. Now, we don't have a lot of options right now. Basically, uh, we're just playing for time until we can figure out a way around Clyde and his corn power. It would be only for a few days, Max. Uh, Pat promised us that, said Landers. I'd make sure you were as comfortable as possible in the holding cell, offered Berg. Get you some decent food, visitors. Yeah, you could all come and visit any time you liked. That's my call on visitors. Aha, uh -huh, Martin said skeptically. And then Clyde would come up with some other bogus charge and have me arrested again. Berg winced. Oh, uh, yeah, probably. So what if I wasn't home? asked Martin. Huh? What if, when you got to my house, I wasn't there? Clyde thought you might be out on a patrol or in the backwoods or something, so he ordered us to stay and wait. Yeah, but what if I was totally not home, like out of town, Martin said. The others in the back of the truck looked at Martin with puzzled faces. Martin leaned over the stake side to talk to Tyler. We were going to spend a day or two testing this rig to get the kinks out before you headed to the coast. What if you go now and I come along? I know Nick was going to be the fire tender, but it would be totally believable that I went on the trip to tend the gasifier. I'd be out of town when these guys showed up at my house to arrest me. A grinchly grin spread over Landers's face. Ah, I'm kind of liking that. Oh, Clyde'll be furious that you got away. But it wouldn't be our fault for not complying with His Majesty's orders. I think I'd like a chance to make him furious. To make it look good, the others are going to need to see you go. Otherwise, he'll just say we were lying. Okay, what about this? Martin had only half a plan in mind. He hoped the other half would show up soon. We were on our way to Glen's down at the bottom of the hill to load up this trailer with a half a cord of firewood, something to trade with on the coast. Coming back from Glen's, we'd be going right by Town Hall. Clyde's in his official office, added Berg. Windows face the road. Oh? Margaret's face lit up with an idea. What if all of us stayed in the truck until we got to Town Hall? We could create a really loud send-off. We could wave hankies and shout good luck and make a racket. Make sure the weasel notices before they drive away. Trying to get rid of me? Martin choked. 
train to keep you out of jail, she winked. Ah, great. Then it's settled. Chief Berg and I will walk, uh, slowly, down Stockman Hill Road, then up Old Stockman. If you guys were to go back down that other way, why, uh, we wouldn't see you. Uh, right, Chief? Oh, that's right. We could even say we didn't believe that he was gone and searched the property, doing our job real diligently, you know. If you all stage a noisy goodbye scene outside of Clyde's window, he'd have no reason to doubt us. Okay, then it's settled, said Martin. You guys walk really slow. We'll act fast. Tyler, we're just a bit away from your house. Let's turn this rig around and get your stuff. We can loop by Nick's and our house and be on our way in a few minutes. Arms and legs inside the bus, children, said Tyler loudly. We're rolling. Tyler made a wide and inelegant turn with the trailer bouncing over a culvert. Everyone in the back held on as he sped back down the hill toward his house. Martin and Nick scooped in more wood chips and chunks while Charles and Tyler ran in their house. We'll have to act fast when we get home, Martin said. The Hendrick brothers emerged only a couple of minutes later, each with a backpack slung over one shoulder and a long rifle in one hand. They're coming, Lucas pointed at Berg and Landers coming over the top of the hill. Hang on, shouted Tyler. The straight six sounded as urgent as everyone felt. Tyler slowed down as he passed Nick's driveway so he could hop off one side of the truck. He shouted that he would be at the Simmons's house in just a few minutes. Tyler didn't pull into the Simmons's driveway. It'd be too hard to turn around with trailer attached. Everyone but Anna and Lucas hopped off the truck and ran into the house. Martin ran to the garage where his truck bag sat along the wall. He hadn't unpacked it since he took it out of the truck, so he figured it would have most of what he might need for a two- or three-day trip. He slung the carbine over his shoulder, slipped a box of ammo for the carbine into the backpack. He added a box of nine mil for the high point. He had heard of trouble in the hinterlands and didn't want to be caught without some punch. He stopped by the closet to dig out his heavier gloves and cap. Susan came up to him with a plastic-wrapped bundle. Here's some food for the trip. Oh, that's okay. Martin tried not to sound unappreciative. My truck bag has one of those three-day life raft ration cubes. I'll be fine. Don't argue with me. Her soft tone disarmed him. She held out the bundle. This has some flatbread, a Ziploc bag of hominy, and a few sticks of your jerky. As she handed him the bundle, their hands touched. They froze at the realization and glanced up into each other's eyes. You make sure you're careful out there. Sometimes you fall down a lot, remember? She smiled. Margaret rushed up to Martin with a bundle in her hands. Susan quickly stepped backwards out of the way. Here's a change of clothes for you and a couple of pieces of flatbread. I know you've got that brick thing, but more is better. You just remember to be careful out there. Martin couldn't help but smile at the redundancy. I'll be careful, he told her. Tyler gave two short blasts of the horn. They all rushed out the door and climbed into the back of the truck. Carlos and Lucas had just finished dumping the last wheelbarrow load of wood chips into the flatbed. The pile didn't look as big as Martin had hoped it would. Nick jogged down the road, his backpack bouncing from side to side as he ran. He grabbed the corner post of the flatbed as the truck started to roll. Everyone had to hold on tight as Tyler drove faster over the dirt road's potholes than was prudent.
The empty trailer bounced like a toy in the hands of an angry toddler. You should take this, said Judy. She pushed the radio into Martin's hands and folded his fingers over it to make sure he had a secure grip. Walter was telling me about robbers that wait in the lonely stretches of road. You might need to radio for help or something. Hold on, people, shouted Tyler. Hard turn coming up. I have several frequencies already programmed in, said Judy. See these buttons? You press them to get a channel. The low numbers are the common FRS and GMRS frequencies. People might have walkie-talkies. Everyone wave to Clyde, Charles shouted out of his window. As fast as Tyler drove past Town Hall, it was doubtful anyone had time to notice who drove by. At the bottom of the hill sat Glenn's firewood business. He had replenished his stacks from the customary August buying season. Scores of cords of wood stacked in long rows stretched behind his house. Tyler executed another inelegant turn in the wide dirt patch Glenn called his parking lot. The noisy engine and clanking trailer brought Glenn and his wife out to investigate. Martin waved. Glenn had cleaned the Simmons chimney two years prior. Judy leaned over to point at more buttons on the radio in Martin's hand. I program number 30 for the frequency Ray and Walter use. You won't be able to pick up Walter, but you might be able to pick up Ray. Remember, they broadcast on the threes. Charles quickly explained to Glenn his plan to trade in coastal towns. He wanted to take a half a cord of Glenn's firewood as a commodity. How long will you be gone? Margaret asked. No idea, said Martin. We're making this up as we go along. I guess at least tonight we'd stay somewhere on the coast. Maybe trading goes fast. Maybe not. I have no idea. This knob is for squelch, Judy leaned in again. It can reduce background. I know what squelch does. Will you try to find a place to stay or just sleep in the truck? Oh, okay. I keep it around five, but if you turn it up too high... You should take the hatchet with you, Mr. Martin, said Lucas. You might have to chop more chips for your gasifier. I don't know where we'll stay. Sleeping in the truck sounds better for watching things. And if you have to broadcast, you press this button for lower power and this one for higher power. But Walter said it will drain the batteries faster. Glenn told Charles that he was charging $300 for a cord before the crisis. He was thinking a cord might cost 500 during the crisis. Charles didn't have that kind of money. Well, no one did anymore. Glenn wasn't interested in trading wood for a small share of Hendricks Brothers Trucking. Charles explained about Clyde's order to have Martin arrested, and the trip was a way to avoid arrest. Glenn smiled. He wasn't fond of Clyde either. Glenn whistled for his kids to come out. They all started tossing split logs into the trailer, making a nearly constant arc of wood. In just a few minutes, they had half a cord loaded. Glenn called it a consignment. Glenn, wife, and children waved as Tyler pulled out onto the road. The Ford labored and sputtered up the hill to town. The gasifier wasn't feeding the engine quite enough to easily pull the load up the hill. Downshifting to second gear helped. Nick and Martin scooped in a fresh hopper full of chips. Tyler pulled over to the side of the road, directly across from town hall. Everyone except Martin and Nick hopped off of the flatbed. Martin raised his voice far more than was necessary to address the little group of well-wishers behind the truck. Well, we're off, everyone. I don't know how long we will be gone. Uh, to the coast, 
It could be days, maybe a week. Keep us in your prayers. A few other people came out of the general store to see what all of the shouting was about. Nick nudged Martin's elbow. Don't turn to look, but I think that's Clyde at the window. Out of the corner of his eye, Martin could see a round red face and two hands pressed against the glass. I think he's seen us, Martin said to Tyler. We better take off now. As Tyler pulled away, the small crowd waved from the roadside. Martin could see Clyde hurrying down the steps of Town Hall. He was shouting, but nothing could be heard over the roar and rattle of the Ford's engine. Clyde was pointing, directing one of his sons to do something. Chase the truck? Shoot the truck? His intent was unclear. But they all disappeared from view as Hendricks Brothers Trucking Company sped down the hill, headed for the coast. Driving slowly through Redmond, the scene was bleak. Vehicles sat at odd angles along the road, wherever they were when the gas ran out. Plastic bags rolled across the street like artificial tumbleweeds. With a cold wind ruffling his hair, Martin felt for a moment like he was cast as Neville in the rural version of the movie The Omega Man. Instead of driving a big red convertible, he was riding in the back of an old Ford. Smoke curled up from the chimneys of houses with boarded windows and doors. The low gray sky and dark traffic lights added to the bleakness. I wonder if Redmond is like Longmeadow, Nick said. I heard they mostly just stay indoors, afraid to go out. Maybe those bandits that Judy talked about come through here too, Martin mused out loud. Mention of the rumored bandits prompted both men to make sure their rifles were within easy reach. The engine labored and misfired a few times as they powered up the on-ramp to Route 101. Martin had topped up the hopper earlier, so he knew the gasifier wasn't running low on fuel. He shook the grate handle in case there was a buildup of ash that was reducing the fire. Once up on the highway's level grade, the misfire stopped. Martin and Nick kept their backs against the cab of the truck to stay out of the cold slipstream. They commiserated on how hard Charles's old Ford rode, even on a smooth highway. Nick had to lean over and speak loudly to be heard over the engine and the buffeting wind. It didn't seem like the police chief really wanted to arrest you. I noticed that, said Martin. What'll you do when we come back? Not sure. Maybe Clyde will have cooled off, or Pat talked some sense into him. Or Lander's done whatever he was biding his time for. Uh, lots of possibilities. Charles slid open the rear window of the truck. Hey, guys, check ahead. In the wide right grassy shoulder and shallow median sat abandoned vehicles at random intervals. Most had all of their doors, hoods, and trunks open. Martin peered over the top of the cab for a better look. Some of the cars looked like they were driven or coasted into the grass. A few sat at the end of dirt ruts or skid marks on the pavement. Tyler steered wide around the burned-out shell of a cube van on the shoulder. "'Could be the work of those bandits you mentioned,' Charles called out of the rear window. "'You two keep an eye on the rear quarters.' Nick took the median and far side. Martin took the shoulder side. They saw no human activity. Were the abandoned cars and trucks actually the work of bandits?' That seemed like something from an old Western movie, not something for the 21st century. 
Perhaps the cars were simply abandoned when people ran out of gas. Opportunist scavengers might have come along later and rifled through the interiors, looking for anything useful. What would roadside bandits find to be worth their while? If the rumors of bandits were true, would half a cord of firewood be a sufficient target? Martin had heard and felt the Ford Straight Six long enough to recognize anomalies. Going up even a modest grade, he could hear the revs fall off. He wondered if their calculations had been off. Was the gas fire they built undersized for the Ford's engine? Up the next long, slow grade, Martin could hear skips and misses in the engine. Revs were falling off more than before. He checked the hopper. It was over half full of trunks. He took a quick peek in the fire door. The fire was glowing bright yellow. There was no excessive ash buildup. Hey, Martin, Charles called out of the window. What's up? We're losing power. Uh, not sure. Got plenty of fuel and the fire looks good. Rolling down the grade, the engine smoothed out, but didn't gain much speed. Up the next low rise, the skips grew more frequent and power dropped off. It sounds like we're running out of gas, Charles said. But we're making gas back here, said Martin. Maybe we've developed a vacuum leak. Could be it's sucking in air so the mixture's too lean. Try choking down the bypass valve some more. Charles pushed and pulled on the lawnmower throttle cable they had rigged up to the bypass valve on top of the engine. The skipping subsided. The engine gained power as they rolled over the low crest. Charles gave a thumbs up in the rear window. Going up the next rise, the skipping returned. Martin could see Charles pushing in the bypass valve. The revs faltered. The engine bucked under the load. I've got the bypass all the way in, called Charles. What now? Yeah, must be a vacuum leak. This is what we would have discovered on a shakedown cruise. Uh, we'll have to stop and find it and fix it. Don't like the sound of that. Yeah, me either. But we either stop and fix the leak or crawl along at five miles an hour. Tyler and Charles carried on an animated discussion that Martin could only see. After some hand flailing and pointing, it appeared that they had reached an agreement. Tyler pulled the truck to a stop in the left lane, well before the exit overpass to Exeter. Charles popped open the hood. Martin began to scrutinize all of their connections. She's idling pretty good, Martin observed. It must not be a very big leak. It doesn't pull much at low pressures. Yeah, but that's with the bypass fully closed, countered Charles. She's getting fresh air from somewhere else. Martin rolled up a sheet of paper into a pencil-sized rod. He lit the end with his lighter and let it flare for a moment, then blew it out. He held the smoking stick of paper near the joints coming from the vortex filter while Tyler gently revved the engine. The smoke drifted up. Charles was doing the same thing, starting with the connections near the engine and working back. When Martin held his smoking paper near the intercooler, a smoke was pulled into one of the joints. The smoke pulled into a second and a third joint. I think we found it, said Martin. The lower manifold of the intercooler seems to have worked loose. You can fix it, right? asked Tyler. Uh, got to. Can't stay here. Check 12, Charles said quickly. All eyes looked up the road. A head and shoulders of a man could be seen peeking around the right abutment of the overpass. Check six, said Nick. Charles kept his eyes forward. 
Got one coming out of the woods, Martin said in a hoarse whisper. Check that. Two. One has a long gun. Second has a pistol in his hand. Got two up front, said Charles. Long gun and pistol. Are they bandits? Nick asked. Don't know, said Charles. If I was a bandit, I wouldn't come walking up to a target. I'd snipe it. They're coming from both sides, said Nick. There's no cover. Don't anybody make sudden moves, said Tyler. Maybe they're looking for a no-shots-fired plunder. Let's let them get closer before we decide what we'll do. Martin's bag lay near the edge of the flatbed. He slowly raised his arm and fished out his little binoculars. As discreetly as he could, he raised the glasses to his face. The two men who came out of the woods were advancing cautiously, but faster than the men from the overpass. "'There's something screwy here,' Martin half-whispered. "'Huh? What do you see?' "'The guy with the long gun. It looks like it has one of those little Tasco scopes on it. The rear sights are halfway out the barrel. I think that's a break-action air rifle.' "'Oh, and get this,' Martin spoke a little louder. "'The guy with the pistol. It's a full-size semi-auto, but the slide's locked open.' "'What?' Charles reached for the binoculars. The guys up front have a bolt action and what looks like a cowboy revolver. You're right about the guy with the open slide. What's up with that? The guy with the open slide is carrying it all menacing, like cops do on TV shows, Martin said. You know what? I don't think these guys have a clue about guns. I'll bet he thinks that's just what a gun looks like. The guys up front could be serious, said Nick. But if any of them had a clue, why would they let that guy carry a pistol with the slide locked open? I don't think the two up front have a clue either. I also don't see anyone else in front or in back. So they're bluffing, mused Charles. Maybe. Everyone, slowly get your grip, but keep them out of sight, said Tyler. Let's let these guys get close, thinking we're unarmed. See what they do. But at the first sign of trouble, drop to the deck and take them out. It took several tense minutes for the four strangers to close in on the idling truck. All right, you guys, called the man with the open slide. Put your hands up and no one gets hurt. Each of them looked at Tyler. Tyler subtly shook his head no. Let him get closer, he whispered. We don't want to hurt anybody, called the man with the air rifle. Just step away from the truck. All four of the strangers were unshaven, rumpled, and had miscellaneous small rips on their sleeves and pant legs. Um, yeah, you, you go lay on your bellies beside the road with your hands over your heads, and uh, uh, no one will get hurt. Uh, we'll just take what we need uh, and leave. No one complied. Uh, we mean business, said Air Rifle. He loosely aimed the rifle from the hip. Open Slide held his pistol up, one-handed, aiming at Martin. Still, no one complied. Don't mess with us, Open Slide said with a crack in his voice. You don't want to mess with us. Tyler softly said under his breath, they're almost in range. On three, we all draw. Me and Charles up front, Nick and Martin take the back. One, two, 
three. All four men whipped out their pistols, held at full extension, each aimed at the heads of a stranger's. Open slide dropped his pistol. Air rifle put up his hands. The two men in front froze with wide eyes. How about you boys put down your weapons, said Charles. They complied, never taking their eyes off the guns aimed at them. Uh, hey, uh, look, we, we didn't mean anything, said Open Slide. Sounded like you did, said Charles. He walked up to the two in front. He motioned for them to slowly step back. They did. He picked up their two guns. He flipped open the cylinder of the revolver and showed it to Tyler. It was empty. He racked a round out of the two seventy. Safety was still on, he said over his shoulder. So what the heck are you guys doing? asked Martin. Uh, we didn't mean anything honest, Open Slide said in pleading tones. We just, uh, we thought that, um... We're really hard up, man, said Air Rifle. We're running out of food. There isn't hardly anything left in the buildings. We figured that we could do like the raiders do. Uh, we could get something that way. How about you boys come sit over here? Charles motioned to the side of the road with his free hand. Put your hands on your heads. Martin, I'll watch them while you and Nick get their leaks fixed. Martin took another long look in a full 360 to assure himself that the four strangers weren't a diversionary bait of some kind. Seeing no other movement, he set to patching up the leaks with J.B. Weld, aluminum foil, and baling wire. You boys could have gotten yourselves killed, you know, Charles said. I told you it was a bad idea, Revolver said to his neighbor. You liked it this morning, the man countered. Yeah, but that was last night, huh? I said it was a bad idea then, remember? Uh, look, Air Rifle said to Charles, uh, we're really sorry. Uh, we weren't going to hurt anyone. We know that, said Charles. He released the slide lock and the pistol. Open slide and air rifle looked on in silent wonder. The four men looked at each other as if one of them had leaked the secret. It's just that our families are, are going to go hungry. Uh, there's nothing left in the buildings. Open slide picked up the tale. The committee banished us from town. Said we weren't supporting the program, so they pronounced us as outcast. All I said was that I didn't think it was fair, complained Revolver. They always said things would be fair. At first, I think it was, but after a while, I could see that the committee was shorting people and making sure their inner circle had more. That was clearly not fair. Uh, what's this committee? Charles asked. Uh, after the first week without power, the committee was formed to help everyone get through the outage. Since the governor refused the FEMA aid, the committee decided that we should all chip in everything we had, added 270. The rec hall had lots of food on the tables. Everyone was supposed to get a fair share each day, fair and square. To each according to his needs, you know. That only lasted a week, resumed Revolver. Then we noticed that our daily portions were getting smaller. I said something to the chairman about it. He said that I was mistaken, that things were exactly the same but I could tell they weren't. Even my son could see that. When I complained again, they hauled me before the committee. 
They told me I was being a troublemaker and that they wouldn't tolerate trouble in their city. They told me the same thing, said Openslide. When I said that the inner circle were getting more, they branded me as an enemy of the people and banished me and my family. Wouldn't let us return to our own house. It was inside the line. Me too. I got banished for looking too long at the food an inner circle woman was carrying. Banished to where? asked Charles. We had to leave town. They have a line. We were told to stay outside of the line, or they threatened to shoot us. All of us banished people found each other. We found a commercial area. All the businesses closed, of course. We broke into a furniture store to live in, because at least it had beds. But we had to post a watch and hide when we saw committee patrols coming. The store was just inside the line. How many of you are there? asked Martin. Seventeen so far, counting the children. There's probably more. The committee has been getting pretty strict lately on what qualifies as being with the program and what isn't. For food, we broke into other businesses in the area, added 270. There were a couple of little food shops and a Dunkin' Donuts, but the committee had rounded up those supplies in the second week. Most of what was in the other businesses was nothing you could eat. A lighting store, plumbing supply, stuff like that. We did find that many of the businesses had vending machines in their break rooms or some break room supplies like crackers or hot chocolate. That worked for a while, but we ran out of buildings. The mobile homes had next to nothing. They'd been pretty well trashed. Martin conducted his smoke test for the patched joints. The smoke showed no interest in the patched seams. It curled up behind his cupped hand before a gentle breeze whipped it away. I think we might be good now. Rev it up, Tyler. Tyler slowly revved the engine. There were no accelerator jets to the gasifier, so speed had to be dialed in slowly, lest the engine starve. Nonetheless, the engine revved strong. The smoke still showed no interest in the seams. Martin gave a thumbs up. Tyler gave a thumbs up in reply. Great, we can leave now, said Charles. Yeah, but what do we do with these guys? There was a moment of indecision. Leaving the men, as is, seemed imprudent. But what to do with them? Martin motioned for the others to join him on the far side of the truck. I've got an idea, Martin said in half a whisper. The clatter of the straight six was a vigorous white noise to mask out their conversation. We don't have a ton of chips for fuel. We've been burning it faster than I thought. We've used almost half of our pile just getting here. My guess is that the remaining half a pile will get us to the coast and partway home. So, you've got your hatchet. We can make more as we go, said Charles. True. But what if we offer to trade with these guys? A pile of chips or some of whatever we trade for on the coast. Maybe ask for four or five-gallon buckets of chips to be ready tomorrow or the next day. That should be enough to ensure we get home. What do you think? What if we don't get anything at the coast? Tyler asked. What'll you give them then? Martin frowned for a moment. Well, then I'll give them my brick of life raft rations. Eighteen biscuits. They'd all get at least one meal out of it. Charles shrugged. 
I say we just leave him here and tell him we'll shoot him if we see him again. And what if they get more guns and figure out how to use them while we're gone? Making enemies doesn't seem like a healthy strategy. Potential trading partners make much better neighbors, Martin said. Yeah, hey, it's your rations, Brick, said Charles. It's also your deal. You go explain it to him. Martin introduced himself. Open Slide, the de facto spokesman of the would-be raiders, introduced himself as Dennis. Martin outlined his deal. The four men brightened up at the prospect of doing something to trade for food. Martin showed them his remaining pile of chips as a visual aid for how big or small the chips should be. He also cautioned them not to chip greenwood. He would know greenwood by the smell. He suggested dry branches or scrap lumber. They nodded that they understood. "'We'll come back through here maybe tomorrow,' Martin said. "'Could be the next day or the day after that. We don't know how long we'll be. But you guys have your four buckets of chips ready. Hang a white flag up on the railing of the overpass there. If we see the flag, we'll come up the off-ramp. Keep watching for us. If you don't show up quickly, we'll drive off. As you know, it's a dangerous place out here.' can't be standing around. He gave them each one disc of his flatbread as a sign of good faith. Well, you might not have to skip town on a moment's notice to avoid a bogus arrest, but keeping a go-bag packed is still a good idea. Have a little food, some water, a change of clothes, whatever you think you'll need to get by for two or three days. You just never know. I'd like to give a big thank you to you listeners out there who've bought me a coffee recently. Your support really does mean a lot to me.